I'm just going to pray uh, real quick and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, I thank you for this evening uh, that we can gather together and study your word. I pray that you would be with us now as we try to understand and perceive uh, the through line of the text and apply that to our lives. Uh, you would guard us, uh, keep us uh, within your truth, uh, and guide us into your truth by your spirit. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we're going to be tackling all of chapter 5 this week. So I'm going to read, uh, I think it's 30 some odd verses. And uh, we'll get going from there. So Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writings or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Then the queen because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king has named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellence and wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read the writing and to make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known the, to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read you the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and glory was taken from him. 
He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of the house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your God, oh sorry, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, Daniel chapter 5, one continuous unit of thought, which is why we will try to tackle it in uh, this little bit of time that we have together. Um, If we're uh, keeping, let's say, a through line through the book of Daniel, it has been a field guide for exiles. And in this uh, chapter, this event, uh, we come essentially to a main idea or a theme of coming up short. Uh, We see that Belshazzar has been weighed, found wanting, and he comes up short. And we will keep in mind the question of, well, what does this have to do with an exile? And we're going to come back to that at the end. But first, the text at hand, and then we'll kind of draw this into the overall theme or scheme of the book of Daniel. So the first thing you notice, or uh, some, some things you notice right off the bat, is that this, we're kind of right off the bat introduced to a king. Uh, we're told that he's, he's having a party. This is a king who's different than Nebuchadnezzar. So in between chapter 4 and chapter 5, a period of time has elapsed. There's been a transfer of power. And we don't know, as the reader, how long that's occurred. In fact, the author of this text is not concerned with telling us how much time has elapsed. They're giving us a theological picture to follow not necessarily a chronological picture, but history can fill in some of the gaps for us and we'll fill those in when we get there. But we see that this king is throwing a party and he makes a certain error while he's throwing this party. And that is, and you see that in verse two and verse three, twice it's repeated that he brings in trophies, he considers them trophies, from the house of God, from the temple. And these are uh, some kind of sacred items that would have been used Uh, most likely in the sacrificial worship of the priesthood in Jerusalem. And so these items are brought to him and not treated in a holy manner. They're actually used uh, essentially as as a trophy uh, to to be prized. The the thing that comes to my mind is uh, if you've ever watched uh, hockey, NHL, uh, when they they win that championship, they'll often pour uh, some kind of alcoholic beverage in the top of the cup and drink out of it. Uh, this is not uncommon for sports. This is the kind of thing. It's a trophy. It's something that's sacred or something that people attain. But when the victors over that thing, the victors who earn it, will treat it as a, just a common drinking vessel. That'll, that is a thing that happens. Um, and this is kind of what the king is doing here. He's treating God's sacred items as though they were common items. And we see this is his mistake 
because as soon as that happens, the text tells us that immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, and everyone's watching the writing, everyone's watching the hand scribble across the wall, but no one really knows what it says. <laughs> everyone just knows that this is something significant, and the text uh, kind of says, it, the, the text, depending on what translation you have, it'll translate it differently. I'm looking at verse 6, where it says the king's color changed, and then it says something in the back half of the sentence. Essentially, in the ESV, it gets translated as his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Um, if this was written in more, let's say, modern language, that's a, that's a Hebrew or an Aramaic euphemism. Essentially, he, he wet himself. He, his bowels loosed. That's what it's saying. So he is scared. His color changed. He, he is scared out of his mind. But he doesn't know what's going on. He's seeing a handwriting on the wall. He can't make sense of it. So he does, much like what Nebuchadnezzar did when he was scared of the dream. He calls in all his wise men, everyone who's got at his disposal, and he brings them in and he declares to them, I will uh, robe you, I will, or, I, will, I will give you whatever you want, I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom, if you can tell me what's going on. Right? This is the same problem we saw with Nebuchadnezzar with his unknown dream that Daniel had to come and interpret for him. And then you see that the king's wise men come in, but they couldn't read, they couldn't make known the interpretation that's in verse 8. In verse 9, it reminds us again, the king is alarmed and his color is changed and his lords are even perplexed. So everyone who's present at this banquet is scared. They know something has happened. They just can't put together what has happened. Remember, these are a people who believe in a pantheon of gods that doesn't communicate divine information to their people. They believe in their pantheon as being mediated by the wise men, the magicians, the astrologers. And remember, back in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar brings those wise men in, they say that is knowledge given to the gods, and the gods don't speak to us, right? That's something, it's kind of a, if you call it a theological tenet of their system. And so they, even though they're, they're polytheistic, they don't really interact with their gods very much. It's really a human kind of affair towards these idols. And so anything supernatural that happens is going to shock them. It's going to surprise them. It's going to cause some kind of a, some kind of a, a quandary. And here, you see that not only is Belshazzar confused, the lords are confused, everyone's scared. And this is happening, it's not like in a secret room to a secret revelation and dream. This happens out in the public, writing on the wall. And so now the question is, okay, well, how do we solve this problem? This is from Belshazzar's standpoint. How do we solve this? My, I've exhausted all my resources. And then comes the character in verse 10, who's called, in the ESV, it translates it the queen. It's most likely not Belshazzar's wife. It's most likely uh, the queen mother of the empire of Babylon, meaning some old person who maybe used to be a queen, but she's just a woman who's outlasted the subsequent kings. So she's kind of grandfathered in, if you will, into the, to the family. And this is the person who uh, knows the history of Babylon and knows that there's a person still alive today who can handle this kind of situation. So Belshazzar is not seemingly aware of on the face of Daniel. Something has happened in the power transition where Daniel has lost his prominence with the king because it's a new king and, uh, as history tells us, a large period of time has elapsed between the events of uh, chapter 2 and chapter 4 and then chapter 5, what's happening now. A large period of time has elapsed. And so uh, this, this person, the queen mother, comes and says, O king, live forever. There is a person who can tell you your dream. That's kind of a summary of verse 10 through verse uh, 12. And so she says, let Daniel be called in. But notice she makes a kind of interesting observation. The very thing that Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar of back in chapter 2, he says, this is not me telling you the dream. This is God telling you the dream. God gives the power. God gives the glory. 
It doesn't matter. They can't get that really quite through their head. Because even she, in this verse, verse 11, attributes Daniel's abilities innately to Daniel. She says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, plural, right? That's within their theological framework. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems, they were in this Daniel. And so she's attributing these abilities kind of as existing in Daniel himself. Even though Daniel has made clear previously, these are not innate to him, these come from God. They, they don't really have a theological category for something like that, so they attribute it to the person. And so, uh, interestingly enough, uh, she still retains the name Daniel, even though he was renamed, right? That's probably a testimony to how set apart he's been for his, his tenure in the Babylonian kingdom. She even says his Hebrew name is Daniel, whom the king has named Belshazzar, uh, but she doesn't really call him that. Everyone calls him Daniel. And so Daniel gets brought in, and the king, uh, who has seen this handwriting on the wall, uh, demeans Daniel. It's like the first thing he says to him. He says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Like, this is the staple. This is what you should be known for. It's kind of a strange, kind of a strange thing, right? The, the text is trying to tell us this Belshazzar guy, he's got a pride issue. He's got a real big problem with wanting to be on top and remind everyone of their place. That's why the handwriting is so bothersome to him. He says, I've heard that the spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and wisdom are in you. And now, essentially, I've exhausted my resources, but, verse 16, but I've heard you can give interpretations and solve problems. And now Daniel is going to answer him. Uh, essentially, you can keep your money, verse 17. Uh, keep your gifts. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. Uh, now, what's interesting, as you saw later in the text, Daniel actually does take, he does receive the gold and the chain. The point here is not that he's saying he's not going to take the stuff. He's, he's basically saying he's not going to be bought off for an interpretation. He's not going to take it and then give a favorable reading of whatever is happening. That's true of the, the wise men, right? That's what Nebuchadnezzar is scared of, remember, in chapter 2. He doesn't want the wise men to tell him his stuff because they're going to conspire to tell him whatever he wants to hear. Belshazzar is in the same boat, and so Daniel's going to remind him, I'm not for sale. This interpretation, if it's true from God, it's fixed. I'm not going to alter it. And then he proceeds not with an interpretation, but for a number of verses, essentially with a history lesson of the Babylonian uh, kingdom as it stands. So he says in verse 18, uh, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So there is this, uh, this is given, not Nebuchadnezzar earned it, right? This is a theological look at the text. God gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. That was made clear last chapter. And because of the greatness that he gave him, because of the greatness that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, everyone worships him, serves him, bows to him, right? All people, nations, languages tremble and fear before him, right? But he's, he's saying Nebuchadnezzar is a proxy for God's rulership. This is the same point Paul makes in Romans 13. The governing authorities are simply a minister, a tool of God. They are not themselves deities or divine or powerful on their own right. God gives that authority to them. And it's important that authorities remember that. And this is part of the reason Daniel tells this history lesson is because Belshazzar needs to remember that this is not his own power. It's not his own authority. It's not his kingdom. It's a kingdom that God gave him, God set up for him. And it's only his as long as God permits him to have that kingdom. That's important for an exile to know that this is not uh, some random Babylonian king and some random Medo-Persian king that's going to follow him. This is God setting up and in control of all these things. And Daniel gives that history lesson. And then he reminds him, verse 20, but when his heart, this is Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly what happens to him. 
he was brought down from his kingly throne. Remember, God made a power show last week, we saw this, down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven mad and essentially eats grass like an ox. So God is showing Nebuchadnezzar who's in charge. He did that last week. And Belshazzar needs to be reminded of what God is capable of doing to kings. Verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Now this is an interesting line. Even though you knew all of this. The text, up until this point, has left it slightly ambiguous as to whether this history lesson is being given for his first time understanding or whether he knew this and he's just being told it. Now, Daniel is saying, I've told you all these things. Why? You're guilty of the same sin Nebuchadnezzar committed in verse 20, right? You have not humbled yourself. This is verse 22. And you knew everything that I just told you. Everything I just recapped for you is simply a convenient reminder to let you know, I know that you know, and everyone else knows that you know all of these things, and you haven't learned from history. This is a condemning, uh, condemning uh, statement. Rather, what has he done? Verse 23, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. How? By the vessels of his house that you have brought in before you, you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, everyone in your house has drunk from these things, And what did you do when you drank from these things? You honored the gods of silver, gold, bronze, wood, iron, and stone. They don't see, they don't hear. This is Psalm 115. But what have you not done? You have not honored the God of heaven who's actually in charge of everything. Big problem. Now, after the history lesson, he's going to give the interpretation. The interpretation, uh, there's a lot of technical stuff going on in this. I'm not going to drive into all of that. The interpretation is this. His days have been numbered. He's been weighed in the balance. He came up short. And now he either needs to, uh, and so his days are now numbered, right? Your, your kingdom is divided. This is verse 28. And it's been given to the Medes and the Persians. So his days are numbered. He's been found wanting. His kingdom is going away from him to the Medes and the Persians. And when Belshazzar then essentially honors Daniel, he hears all these things, right? Daniel has told him this interpretation, and that very same night, everything comes true. He's killed. His kingdom is given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, little historical background on this. These events happen at the tail end of the Babylonian Empire, as the text in verse 30 and 31 make clear. So the Medo-Persian Empire is the next empire that's going to take over. Right? We even saw this in the, in the head of gold and the body of silver right? in chapter 2. There's some empire after Nebuchadnezzar. It's important to note this person, Belshazzar, is referred throughout the text to as Nebuchadnezzar's son. It's not his immediate son. It's some Babylonian king after Nebuchadnezzar, but after a period of time. Nebuchadnezzar reigns on the front half of the Babylonian empire when the Jews go into captivity. He does not reign the entire time Babylon's in charge, even though it's referred to as his kingdom. But he's still honored in Babylon, right? He's being referred to as the father of these people. So it's, he's just the ancestor of them. In the same way the Jews will say, uh, Abraham is our father, right? They're not saying he's their direct parent. They're saying he is the person whom we trace our lineage and honor to. Same kind of way the text is using it here. So Nebuchadnezzar is the father of this person. He's the ancestor of him. And so at the tail end of this kingdom, what happens is they'll, they're partying. And they're partying, as history will tell us, in the same day that their city is surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. Essentially, they're so confident that they're not going to lose. They're not going to be invaded. Their city's so fortified. They're having a party. They're not preparing for war, right? The text makes it clear. So the Medes and the Persians are already there and have already overtaken are That same night, they overtake the kingdom, which means they, they didn't just show up, you know, or fly in from somewhere. 
They were camped outside and they get into the kingdom wall. History tells us that this happened by diverting essentially the stream that flows under the city. They drained it, diverted it, walked through uh, where the water supply goes, got up into the bedchambers and, and killed all the royal family. So the Medes and the Persians sack him that very night. The place where he feels safe is where he gets killed. But lest a Jew be mistaken and think, oh, that just happened because the Medes and the Persians are clever or smarter. The text is telling us this is all God's doing. In the same way that Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, chapter 4, God's doing. Jerusalem is given over to the Babylonian Empire, chapter 1. This is God's doing. And a prophecy in chapter 1 of Daniel comes true at this point. Chapter 1, verse 21, Daniel actually exists until after the Babylonian Empire is around. So who's in charge at the end of the day? Daniel is, not because Daniel's in charge, because God's in charge. So a Jew in exile is safe in their exile, not because they're a powerful people, not because they hold positions of authority. Daniel's actually kind of been cast to the side in this new king's throne. But the main point of the text is God's still in charge, so an exile has nothing to worry about because the God who loves them is the same God who's still orchestrating all things. That's an important lesson for an exile to know, and it's the main thrust of the text. Now, there's a secondary thrust, which is that no one can escape the judgment of God. No king, no ruler, no authority is outside of God's judgment. So an exile hears this and says, well, Belshazzar is not the ultimate judge of me and my soul. The Medes and the Persians who are about to take over, not the ultimate judge of me and my soul. My boss at work, not the ultimate judge of me and my soul. The peers around me who may not accept God and his testimony, not the ultimate judge of me and my soul. Who's the ultimate judge? The one who sits on the throne and judges all things. That's an important thing to know when you're deciding, should I do this or should I do that? When you're deciding, do I remain faithful? Do I hold on to my faith or not? Do I con condemn, uh, con condescend to the world around me and the, the habits and the systems around me or not? Well, you might be tempted to do that unless you remember God's in control. He judges. He's sovereign over all things. That's really important to know. When the kingdom who already exiled you and took over you, for you, now they lose themselves and they get taken over by another empire. What are you supposed to do? Another king, another bad ruler, another exile. When is this going to end? The point is, an exile is safe, even, no matter how long this goes on for, because God is in charge and he loves his people. That's the main thrust, if, it, if you like, of the text. Now, uh, there's one more thing that is, is interesting in this text, which is the immediacy of the punishment on Belshazzar. And that uh, is clear in verse 30. It's almost very rapid, very short sentence. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was kill, king was killed. So he gets the warning from the dream, for, or from the handwriting, much like Nebuchadnezzar gets the warning from the dream. Belshazzar has already been told by Daniel, you haven't humbled yourself in the past. But notice, God still warns him and gives him essentially a whole evening or afternoon to repent, and then the city is sacked. Now, what's clear from the text, there's no indication that Belshazzar actually humbles himself. He simply makes the exchange of the interpretation for the reward and kind of goes about his life, probably discarding the dream or the interpretation or whatever Daniel had just told him. And, and so what's interesting is Belshazzar never humbles himself, even though the very warning itself serves as a means to give him another opportunity to repent. Right? Why is a warning given? to give him an opportunity to repent. This is, John the Baptist comes in the New Testament, says, flee from the wrath to come. There's no flee from the wrath to come and you will be saved. The point is, flee from the wrath to come. Why? Because if you flee, if you repent, God's a gracious God. He will deliver you. This is his character and nature, right? He, he can stay his hand if he wants to. It, and it's often the case in scripture, like Jonah and the city of the Ninevites. 
Jonah comes and says, wrath is coming. What does Nineveh do? They repent, sackcloth and ashes, and God does not destroy the city. So God uses the warning as his means of calling them to repentance. And the same thing is probably happening here, except that Belshazzar doesn't repent. He doesn't really consider much of this dream, but he's still hanging in the balance and found wanting. So even though he doesn't think that the judgment is all that serious, the point is, it ultimately is. He was found wanting, he's judged, the kingdom is taken from him. I think that's a good thing for all of us to remember. I think the way uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts it is is quite uh, on point. He says, we must not think, however, that this account is merely about Belshazzar. It's about Presbyterians and Baptists and Anglicans and Pentecostals who have hidden Belshazzar-like attitudes and who have never listened to the testimony of any predecessors. Those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. But what really haunts us here is the little phrase is that it was that very night. It suggests that Belshazzar joins the ranks of Saul and Judas and the rich man in Luke 12.20, in whom the sharing of the hopeless darkness outside of God's truth is their inheritance. Uh, By the way, Luke 12.20 is a reference to the rich man in the parable who tears down his storehouses and he's going to build new ones. The text says, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Don't build yourself riches on earth. That's kind of the thrust there. Belshazzar is like that, that thrust, and he serves as a warning to all who read the text. And I think that's, let's say, that main thrust. The coming up short of Belshazzar tells all of the exiles that God's still in charge. He's still the ultimate judge. And even though everything else is going haywire, that is a comfort to an exile. Uh, Let me just pray, and then we can go to some questions. Father, I thank you uh, for your word, for all the goodness that is in it. Lord, I pray that we would not soon move beyond the message of the text, that it would dwell in our hearts, that it would sanctify us, that it would wash us, that it would purify us. And Lord, that we would be uh, aware and sensitive to the moving of your spirit, the prompting of your, uh, of your spirit, and that we would be uh, repentant people, that we would not harden our hearts towards your warnings, but that we would be sensitive to them. Pray this in your name. Amen.